Welcome to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. It is the world's only museum dedicated to preserving and celebrating the rich history of African-American baseball and its profound impact on the social advancement of America. People come here expecting to meet some pretty good baseball players and you're going to leave not being disappointed. You're going to meet some of the greatest athletes to ever play this game. You walk away with an even greater appreciation for just how special this country really is. Because the story of the Negro Leagues could have only happened in America. Yes, it is anchored in the ugliness of American segregation, a horrible chapter in this country's history. But out of segregation rose this wonderful story of triumph and conquest, and is all based on one small, simple principle. You won't let me play with you, then I'll just create a league of my own. Those leagues, the Negro Leagues, were formed right here in Kansas City. They helped make the game the global game that it is today. And quite frankly, the Negro League didn't care what color you were. All they cared was can you play. These athletes loved the game of baseball so much that they were willing to endure whatever social adversity confronted them as they traveled the highways and byways of our country just to play baseball. That passion would not only change our sport, but it would change our country. This wonderful, precious piece of baseball and Americana that escaped the pages of American history books. Countless generations of us went through our own formal educations without knowing one of the most significant chapters, not in baseball history, but in American history, the story of the Negro Leagues. By the time you've bared witness to everything that they endured just to play baseball in this country, then the very last thing that happens here is, now you can take the field. Baseball. Oh, I do too. I love everything about it. I love the history of it. It's been around so long mm -hmm. and you can kind of see like America's grown up with baseball. They have. Yep. Yeah. And I'm so excited with the guests we have on today because this is, it's all about growing up mm -hmm. and we can see how America's grown up through this interview. Yeah. And it's Bob Kendrick. He's the president of the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City. So cool. Amazing. And yes. we have his shirt on. It's He's the chief storytelling officer. Yeah. And, and these shirts are really, so comf yeah, comfy. They are. Yeah. And he really is a good storyteller. Oh, You're going to actually, I just fell in love with this guy. He is the best storyteller of all this history of baseball, how it, when it integrated how if you just if you love the history of baseball, you're going to absolutely love this interview. But he mentions a guy named and I needed a little more information on him. So who is yeah. Buck O'Neill? Buck O'Neill was an amazing Negro League player. OK. And like he was just he was known for being one of the top players. Right. So he ended up after the Negro League ended, he ended up years later. He was integral in starting the museum. OK. 
So, and that's how uh, Bob ended up meeting him is through the museum work. Right. And Buck O'Neill, we're going to find out in the interview that something really special happened for him. It's he's already passed away, but something amazing happened recently. Yeah. For Buck O'Neill. Yeah. And you'll hear that from Bob. Yeah, that's so cool. So, and we talked about in the interview about he talked about the Buck Bug. Yeah. And how you when you're around Buck O'Neill, you just felt better about life. Yeah. That's and true. that's totally how we like you say in the interview, we were bitten by the Bob Bug. He's I so felt good. so much better about life after we talked to him. Right. So, so you're going to love this interview. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's so fantastic. So let's get right to it. Okay, here we go. Okay, Bob, thanks so much for joining us today. How's it going in Kansas City? Well, you know what? It's a uh, busy, busy Monday in Kansas City, but all's good. Busy, busy is good in my world. Yeah, <laughs> so if, if I've got a lot of idle time, that's not a good thing, but things are well. Uh, we've had an incredible month of February. And now the month of March has gotten off to a pretty good start as well. The only thing right now that's bumming me out is the fact that we don't have spring training baseball going on right now. I and know. What's that all about? These labor issues, I'd be feeling a whole lot better because I'm not unlike most fans. We want to see the game being played and we want to get back to enjoying and watching games. And, and I'm sure they'll get through the labor issues. You know, we just hope that it won't interrupt too much of the season. Yeah, hopefully sooner than later. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, yeah, we can hope for that. So, I want to start out by asking you, how did a college basketball player from Georgia hey. become like the voice of <laughs> Negro League baseball history? So, how did that all happen? Completely by happenstance. <laughs> it really did. I had no idea, guys, when I started volunteering with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum going back to 1993. It's hard for me to believe that it's been 29 years of involvement with this great institution. But when I started volunteering with the museum in, in 1993, I knew a little bit about the Negro Leagues, more so from the standpoint that I knew the names like Satchel Paige and Cool Papa Bell, Josh Gibson, because these are transcending names. Most baseball fans have at least heard those names. Now they may not necessarily know just how great they really were, but you likely have heard those names. But guys, I had no idea that I was literally walking into what would become my passion. And, and here I get to Kansas City chasing a basketball, and now I make my living in baseball. <laughs> yeah, albeit yeah, baseball history. But when the first time I stepped into what was then this little fledgling organization known as the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And y'all, it was in an office about as big as the size of my office. <laughs> and all it had was some photos on the wall. And I remember walking in and I'm looking for the executive director at that time. His name was Don Motley. Uh, he's, he's since passed away now. And I, I remember walking in. This was in 1993. And I walk in. I say, well, I'm looking for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. He says, son, you're standing in it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, and, but, you know, you hear these stories of love at first sight. It genuinely was love at first sight. Oh, that's so cool. That I really kind of encountered this story and this little museum. I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the story. I fell in love with the amazing athletes who made this story. 
And I just wanted to learn as much as I could. And y'all, I didn't want to keep it to myself. I wanted everybody else to feel the same way I felt about it. <laughs> and, and then again, as you started to meet the players, I fell even deeper in love with the story because their spirits, their spirits were just so endearing. Mm -hmm. uh, I tell people all the time, had they been bitter about the things that maybe transpired in their lives as they were trying to play baseball in this country, I think every one of us would have said you had every right to be bitter. Yeah. A player I ever met, not one of them ever harbored any bitterness or spoke any ill will toward anyone who may have attempted to perpetrate something against them as they were trying to play baseball in this country. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was just such an endearing spirit. Now I'm falling even deeper in love with this story. But I never saw, I never dreamt that it would turn into a career and probably one of the most gratifying things that I think I could have ever done personally or professionally. And so it's been an amazing journey, but it all started for me as a volunteer in 1993. Wow. wow. That's so cool. And it's so cool to hear the attitudes of the players. Because <laughs> it's like you say, it's it would be so easy to be bitter about all that. Yeah. 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 And, and, and you know the thing, what I realized, Coach Scott, and that's after I really started to understand the depth of what this story represented both on and off the field, they were never going to be bitter about baseball because you could not convince them that they weren't playing the best baseball that was being played in this country. Now, the world said the best baseball was being played in the major league. I don't think they ever believed that. Yeah. No, they didn't. They knew how good their league was. They knew how good they were. And really, the major leaguers knew how good they were. But again, they wanted to prove to the world that they were as good as anyone to play this game. So they were never going to be bitter about baseball. But them, it was the trials and tribulations of having to try and navigate their way across the highways and byways of this country and everything that was happening on that journey. You know, not knowing where you could get something to eat or not having a place to stay. So they would oftentimes have to sleep on the bus and eat their peanut butter and crackers. They didn't like that. Of course they didn't. But what I tell my guests here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is what you have to admire is that they never allow that set of social circumstances to kill their love of the game. Mm -hmm. So their spirits was like, OK, well, if I've got to sleep on the bus and if I've got to eat my peanut butter and crackers, I'm going to keep playing ball. You cannot mm -hmm. rob me of this joy of playing this game. And you know what? I'm pretty doggone good at it. And I want other people <laughs> to see how good I am at it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a different kind of grit than we see today. Yeah, that's oh, true. there's no doubt. No doubt the fortitude, the courage, but also the passion and love that you have to have for something. Because honestly, God, it had been easier for them to quit. Mm -hmm. It had been easy to quit and go do something else because it wasn't like they were making a lot of money. Now, the superstar players were making a good living. They had to play year round in order to earn that living. But it wasn't like the more majority of them were making a great deal of money. This is all about passion and love of the game. Mm -hmm. And that's what I talk to my current major league athletes when they come to visit the museum. That's what I share with them. The one bond, the common denominator that you have with the guys who played in the Negro Leagues is simply love of the game. You play this game because you love it. 
And, and I know as fans, we can sometimes get a little fickle because we have a tendency, as we do with much of society, to equate success to money. And so we measure everything by money. And because the athletes today are afforded an opportunity to make a great living, we just naturally assume that they don't love the game as much as the guys. And yes, he is. Of course they do. They're still playing a game. As you guys know, you're about to go coach a little league game. They're still playing a game that you played when you were a kid and you played it for free. And if they had to play it for free, they still play it for free today. They've just been afforded a great opportunity to make a great living playing the game that they love. But I also share with them that the fact that you will never see a greater example of love of the game than you do when you walk through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Oh, they had to love it in order to endure the things that they had to endure. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So you always mentioned that you're bitten by the buck bug. <laughs> so explain to us how that happened and what are the symptoms of being bitten by that bug? <laughs> buck O'Neill. Buck O'Neill, my guy. When I met him in 1993, and it's amazing that within our social circles here in Kansas City, we had never, never encountered one another. I'd heard the name Buck O'Neill, but I'd never met Buck. And the very first time that I met Buck, like everybody else, you fall in love with Buck. Yeah, you are bitten by the Buck Bug, and there is no antidote for the Buck Bug. Now, no, you just, <laughs> you're just endeared by the passion and the charisma, the gentle spirit that he had that is so engaging and so inviting. And then you just want to be on Buck's team. You want to do whatever you could to help Buck and his efforts to build this museum be successful. I never met another human being who really had that kind of innate spirit about them. I liken it to a Mother Teresa, a Gandhi, a Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You know, and it, it was just his ability to see the good in everyone. Even if they weren't good, he still found a way to see the good in that human being. And his ability to love people universally and how people reacted to that. I mean, everywhere we went. And we traveled all over this country together. I witnessed this with my own eyes. You know, I'm watching this transpire where if he didn't know you, he'd walk up, introduce himself. My name is Buck O'Neill, what's yours? And by the time that you were leaving to go wherever else you were going, you're sharing an embrace as if you'd known each other all your lives. You know, it was that kind of spirit. He was energized by people and people were energized by him. People oftentimes ask me what I remember most about Buck. And, and I was blessed. I, I, I'll be honest. It was a tremendous blessing for me to be able to go all over the country hanging out with Buck O'Neill. Y'all, they paid me to hang out <laughs> with Buck O'Neill. Now, they didn't pay me much, but they paid me nevertheless. Somebody's got to do it. Yeah, and, and I would have done it for free. I yeah. would have done it for free. And, and what a blessing it was for me because so all the car rides and plane rides and breakfast and lunch and dinner and golf, you know, we played a lot of golf together and all the great stories he shared with me but the thing that I remember most, the thing that struck me the most about Buck is that you always felt better leaving Buck 
than you did when you came to see him. And this is not that many people that strike you in that manner. You know, mm -hmm. I don't care how bad your day might have been going. If you have an encounter with Buck O'Neill, it's better. It was just <laughs> automatically better. And, and I just think that's what being bitten by the buck bug was all about. And I'm so glad that I was bitten. <laughs> <laughs> well, didn't he recently? He was just voted into the Hall of Fame, right? The baseball yes, Hall of Fame. Yes, finally, finally. Yeah, yeah December 5th. And I've been smiling ever since. Yeah, ever since about 5.30 Central Standard Time on December 5th when, <laughs> yeah. when Josh Rowich over the National Baseball Hall of Fame uh, welcomed Buck O'Neill as a, as a member having been voted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame 15 years after he missed by one vote. Oh, and gosh. 15 years after I had to tell my friend that he didn't get enough votes to get into the Hall of Fame. He, he was over in the conference room right adjacent to my office. And we all thought it was a shoe-in that Buck was going to get in. And it didn't go the way that we had thought it was going, mm -hmm. that we thought it was going to go. And the call came to me to let me know that Buck didn't get enough votes to get in. And I had to go tell my friend. Oh, goodness. And guys, it was gut-wrenching. Mm -hmm. It really was. It was one of the most gut-wrenching things I think I've ever had to do and when I finally mustered up enough courage to tell him, he just looks up at, up me, looks up at me, and he smiled. He said, "Well, that's how the cookie crumbles." And, and in the next voice, he asked me how many had gotten in. This was in 2006, when 17 other Negro leaguers were voted in, and Buck was left out. Mm. And mm. I, I tell people all the time, as a steward of this story, which I am. I should have been elated. We got 17 Negro Leaguers in, but I wasn't. And I feel horrible by the fact that I wasn't because I was upset that my guy didn't get yeah. in. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> One of your Buck, good friends didn't make it, yeah. Exactly, and Buck was overjoyed that 17 had gotten their place in the Hall of Fame. And you know, as it goes down now in history, he pushed aside his disappointment, went to Cooperstown, and spoke on behalf of the 17 who got in. All of them did. They didn't have a voice. And Buck became their voice. Oh, and wow. the world was saying, this should be your induction speech. And there he was speaking on behalf of those who didn't have a voice. And what I still say to be one of the most selfless acts in American sports history. And then a little over two months later, my friend passed away at age 94, a month shy of his 95th birthday. Oh, wow. Guys, he taught us a tremendous lesson on how to handle disappointment. Yeah, and so it just kind of helped me change my perspective. I tell people all the time, I'm still trying to be more buck-like. I'm still a work in progress, though. <laughs> <laughs> So, no, that's incredible. Um, so tell us about how YMCA in Kansas City played such a pivotal role in the creation of the Negro League. The Paseo YMCA, yep. literally a stone's throw from my office, just right around the corner, is where Andrew Root Foster, a Texan from Calvert, Texas, our Andrew Root Foster led a group of eight independent Black baseball team owners into Kansas City. They met at the Paseo YMCA 
And on February 13, 1920, they convened having established the Negro National League, the first successful organized black baseball league. The Negro Leagues would then go on to operate remarkably for 40 years from 1920 until 1960. Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier in 1947. 13 years after Jackie, the Negro Leagues finally ceased operations because really by then, the best young black stars had moved into the major leagues or into the minor league system, and there was simply no replenishing system, so the leagues finally dissolved. But for those who sometimes wonder why a Negro Leagues museum is in Kansas City, it is because Kansas City is the birthplace of the Negro Leagues, again, established on February 13, 1920, by Andrew Ruth Foster at the Paseo YMCA. We're in the process now of saving that nationally historic landmark. Oh, great. We'll, yeah, I was just going to ask if it. it was still there. Uh-huh, it is. And we're going to restore it and convert it into an education and research center in memory of the late, great Buck O'Neill. Oh, that's awesome. Very cool. Um, mm-hmm. So Rube Foster, like when the league was formed, his quote and just tell us what this means. His quote was, we are the ship, all else the sea. So what did he mean by that? In essence, it was his declaration of independence. He was sending Major League Baseball notice that a new player had arrived on the scene to be reckoned with. So you won't let me play with you? We just create our own. And, and Rube had the wherewithal. He had the juice to get it done. Others had tried, but had failed. But Ruth Foster developed a model that would actually succeed. And interestingly enough, guys, to give you an indication of just how forward thinking Ruth Foster was, when he established the Negro Leagues here in 1920, he actually thought that he would create a league that was so dynamic that he would force Major League Baseball's hand to expand. Mm-hmm. So in this case, if for those of you who are football fans, think about the merger of the National Football League and the old American Football League, the old AFL. Uh-huh. Or for basketball fans, the ABA merger with the NBA. Mm-hmm. And he thought that he would force Major League Baseball's hand to do the same thing, that they would take maybe four of those eight teams and merge them in, and then you take the rest of that talent and disperse them to those other teams. And he was almost right. Instead, Major League Baseball focused on integrating the field, which is coincidentally, ultimately put the Negro Leagues out of business anyway. Uh Mm -hmm. And and so, but that's how forward thinking Rube Foster was. He was an absolute genius. Rube Foster, in my own estimation, is the greatest baseball mind this sport has ever seen, and hardly anybody knows who he is, even though he is rightfully enshrined in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Mm. Wow, that's so cool. Uh, <laughs> a, few, a few years ago, we, we ended up, go, we've been trying to visit all the stadiums. That's kind of, uh, we've been checking them off. And we went to Kansas City and we walked in and I think you had seen on their social media, but I didn't know anything about when we walked in and we were handed these lovely hats right yeah, here. Yeah, right behind us. That's what we got at the game. Oh, From yeah, the, yeah. We were there on a dress to the nines night. That's yeah. nice, but yeah. And I said, what in the world is happening? And so tell <laughs> us about the Kansas City Monarchs and what it means to dress to the nines, how the 
those things go together. Well, and you know, guys, every now and then an idea comes along and you wish it was your idea. (laughs) (laughs) I have a lot of those. And and 20 years later, I might lie and swear (laughs) it was my idea, but it wasn't my idea. Two young white kids here in the area approached me initially about eight years ago, I think now. And they said, Mr. Kendrick, what do you think about an idea to see if we can get fans to dress up to go to Kauffman Stadium the way fans used to dress up to go to Monarch Games? And we want to call it Dress to the Nines. And the first words that came out of my mouth was, damn, how come I didn't think of that? idea was absolutely brilliant because it was so organic. And, and to relate it back, oftentimes Negro League games were played on Sundays. Major League Baseball didn't play a lot on Sundays. And you have to remember that the Negro League teams were renting the ballpark from the Major Leagues, which is one of the reasons why it took so long to integrate because Major League Baseball teams were making money from the Negro Leagues. Oh, yeah, so, they were already making money off them. Yeah. Uh-huh, exactly. Mm. And, and so the Negro League teams would rent the ballpark, play that Sunday doubleheader, and we left church dressed to the nines as they were. <laughs> and so the idea was to recreate that experience in a modern-day capacity. And so our first effort was just literally, I don't know, two weeks before the game that we had designated. I think it was a Jackie Robinson Day game. April 15th game. And we just did a social media campaign and just trying to see if we could get people to join us. And we must have gotten about 300 people. And we all met at Rivals out in at Kauffman Stadium. And you could tell that people were looking like, what in the world is going on? Why are these people dressed up? <laughs> and, and so the Royals didn't get involved in year one, but they loved the because it was too late by the time we started the, the effort. It was just too late for them to get involved. But they loved the idea so much that the very next year they got involved, put some promotional muscle behind it, and now thousands of people put on their Sunday best to go out and watch a ball game. And and it's just a throwback nod to the fans. You know, Mm -hmm. we just say one game out of the year, we're going to pay honor to the fans the way that they went to the ballpark. Wasn't sure we were able... Now we see the women and the women are all the way vintage. I love oh, it. there's flapper got, girls and everything. Oh, yeah. No, they got the hats. They got the yeah, curls, yeah. They got the gloves. The polka dotted dresses. Yes, yes. To see little kids rocking their fedoras. Uh-huh. I, call it, I call it the most fashionable game in baseball. And, and like I said, I wish I could tell you it was my idea, <laughs> but it wasn't my idea. <laughs> I love that. I loved when we were sitting there. That's the two things I remember is that sitting there and just, it was just a step back in time. If you looked in a certain direction where most of the people were dressed that way, it was just such a cool picture. And then the other thing I remember some skewered strawberries on a stick with some chocolate. I mean, it was a really good tasty dessert they sell there at your stadium. They don't sell that at every stadium. No, they don't. They definitely don't sell it at a ranger stadium. No, they don't. And we got to meet some of the, you were probably, we probably met you there because we, you had some of the players autographing yeah. stuff. Yeah, they were there. So we met some of the players. We did a, we did a pregame signing as we would customarily do. You know, the sad reality of it is now it's so difficult to do that because we're losing all the players. Yeah, it's true. We're losing all the players. 
I, I remember when I got involved with this museum back in 1993, there were a lot of Negro League players who were still here in Kansas City. Many of them were involved in that early organizing when the museum was in that one-room office. They literally took turns paying the monthly rent to keep wow. the little office open. That's how we got stuck. Mm. And now they're all gone. Mm. They're all gone. Mm. And we knew that from the onset that this was literally a race against time, that mm. the people who made this history, it wasn't a matter of if, simply a matter of when, they were all going to be gone. And, and it saddens me, you know, from that respect. Because, you know, every time we lose one of those players, you lose a part of your family. They're your extended family. And when it comes to players like Buck O'Neill and the late Connie Johnson and Slick Surratt and Jim Lefty Lamarck, these were guys that I knew intimately. We played golf together. We hung out together. Jess Rogers, these guys, every time you lose one of those guys, there's a little bit of emptiness. There's a void, you know? And so in my job, you witness a lot of death. It comes with the territory. And, you know, but again, it's so important that the legacies play on. So it's getting more difficult now, Scott, to even have those autograph sessions because we're just losing the guys who were part of that story and the ones who are still with us there at an age now where it's very difficult for them to travel in to do those kinds of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what did the Negro League mean to like individual communities throughout America? What did it mean to the people? Everything. Yeah. Everything. It brought, as you could well imagine, joy to the African-American community at a time that wasn't very joyous. You know, as we look back at that era of American segregation, as I remind people all the time, segregation was a horrible chapter in this country's history. But what came out of segregation was this incredible story of triumph over adversity. And the Negro Leagues, while it was shared with everyone, it was open for any and everyone to come and enjoy that experience. It was something that was inherently created by the African-American community and celebrated by the African-American community. And for those, whatever it was, two hours, you kind of, it took away some of the angst that was part of life at that time. But the other side of it is what segregation did was it forced ownership. It forced you to have your own because otherwise you you, you weren't going to be able to do it. So here in Kansas City, for example, Black folks could only live within a 13-block radius could not live outside those 13 blocks. <laughs> but y'all, within those 13 blocks, you had everything you needed. And because of the success of Black baseball here, the success of the great Kansas City Monarch, it was helping those segregated, mandated Black-owned businesses thrive. Yeah, the Monarchs played right up the hill from where we are We're at 18th and Vine. The Monarchs played at 22nd and Brooklyn. And when the Monarchs would open the season, there would be a marching band that would start here at 18th and Vine. And behind them, 17,000 plus, standing room only, going to see the great Kansas City Monarchs play. So after the game, 
those folks came right back here to 18th and Vine and they supported those segregated mandated black owned businesses. So as a result, those businesses were flourishing. And, and so it's an interesting dynamic to the overall story because you can directly parallel the rise and fall of the Negro Leagues with the rise and fall of Black economy in this country. And to a great extent, Black economy never recovered from losing the Negro Leagues. So what was good morally, what was good socially, was devastating economically. And, and that's what I remind my guests is that there is always a cost for progress, always. And, and today, of course, it's more technological in nature. But with each technological advancement, what happens? Somebody loses their job. And this was good, however, for the soul of our country. And it did move us in ways socially we never ever dreamt possible, but it did come at a cost. Yeah, those black businesses never recovered from losing the Negro Leagues. Mm. Wow. Yeah, so what were some of the other consequences of integration of baseball and the end of the Negro League? Yeah, well, you know, what basically happened was you saw all this great talent being siphoned out. And, and there was no way that the Negro Leagues were going to be able to sustain itself. And, and so I think several Negro League teams thought that they may become feeder systems for major league teams, My, basically be a part of their minor league affiliates. That was never going to happen. They already had their minor league structure in place. And, and so if you were a young, aspiring black ball player, you now no longer needed the Negro Leagues you could just go straight into the major leagues, minor league system with the hope of trying to get to the major leagues one day. And that is what ultimately put the Negro Leagues out of business. Mm -hmm. Or as the former CNN anchorman Bernard Shaw said in one of our videos here, he said, you might say that the Negro Leagues were so good that they put themselves out of business. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh-huh. Yeah, the players are so good, the major leagues wanted them. Yeah. They wanted them. Yeah. They wanted them. And so, as you can imagine, you couldn't lose that star talent and not have a, a replenishing system in place. And then the second aspect is the Black fans that had supported Black baseball left too. Because now we're going to go see how Jackie Robinson is going to fail. We've been waiting on this. Yeah. How is Jackie going to fail? How is Larry Doby and Satchel Page and Monty Irvin, Roy Campanella, Ernie Banks, right there in you all's backyard from Dallas, Texas, my dear friend, the great Ernie Banks. They wanted to see how their stars were going to fare now that the door had been open. And so that fan base left as well. Mm -hmm. And really, to a great extent, there wasn't enough resources for those Black fans to support both. You know, that was a hard-earned dollar. So yeah. if you're investing now, you're investing because the natural curiosity of wanting to see how our stars would do now that they had the chance. Because as we talked about earlier, despite what they had done in building the Negro Leagues, the world still said the highest level that you can play is in the major leagues. And yeah. so once Jackie breaks through, the fan base followed him. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I mean, they came in throngs to the point where there were still a lot of major league teams that had segregated sections of their ballparks. Mm -hmm. And the black fan base was filling up those sections and you'd have thousands of black fans on the outside trying to get in. Mm -hmm. 
Those Major League Baseball teams got smart enough to realize, you know what? We are losing money here. So yeah. they opened up, <laughs> they money opened up those sections to allow these black fans to come in. Uh, and, and so, but it, it spelled the death knell of the Negro Leagues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, we're going to mention three names and just give us a quick thought of what they meant to you or mean to okay. you. Uh, Jackie Robinson, what does that name mean to you? Courageous, mm. brave, dedicated, strong. Because, guys, he carried an entire race of people on his broad shoulders. Now, I don't know if he realized that that was going to inherently be the case. It's just hard for me to even comprehend that you walk in willingly knowing that you were literally carrying 21 million Black folks on your back because, guys, if he fails, an entire race of people would have failed. Mm. That's an enormous amount of pressure for any one man to have to bear. Mm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay, what about uh, Hank Aaron, Henry Aaron? My idol. My childhood idol as a kid growing up in Crawfordville, Georgia. My all-time favorite baseball player. And I think one of the finest human beings that ever walked the face of this earth. Philanthropist, humanitarian, tremendous businessman, civil rights icon. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, a great baseball player. <laughs> <laughs> and he was pretty good at baseball. Yeah, yeah he was pretty doggone good. <laughs> yeah, and what, what about Joe Posnatsky, the writer? My brother. My brother from another mother. <laughs> <laughs> and as we, you know, we're, we're not biological brothers, but we are as thick and close as brothers. And much of my success I owe to my friend Joe Posnatsky. He has always been in my corner. As I tell people all the time, every time I have a bad idea, I vet it with Joe. We've done some incredible things. He's been such a tireless advocate for not only this history, but this museum and, and, and one of my greatest supporters. And so, yeah, that's my guy. Yeah, that's so cool. Very I can't cool. believe you didn't ask about Satchel Page. Huh? Like you wouldn't ask him. What he, that's like you, you, ask him you love. You've always talked about him. I've always loved Satchel Page. That was <laughs> my too. guy. Me too. Me too. The goat. And I think it's all the stories like he was older and the rocking chair and everything everything about Satchel makes him compelling. Yeah. And and again, in my opinion, he is the greatest pitcher of all time. Because when you look at what he did, when you combine the longevity with the great stuff and the charisma. He had star written all over him. And he was the biggest star amongst big stars in the Negro League. But none shine brighter than Satchel. And you're right. When you start to think about how old he really was, and we don't Did he even really know? He didn't really know, did he? I'm not sure he even knew how old he was. (laughs) But most believe he was older than whatever he said he was. He was probably older than that. And all of that brings a level of mystique to the right, yeah. But you know, all the great stories and you know the names of the pitches and but when the moment was the brightest, Satchel stood the tallest, always. And, and that's why I think he's the greatest of all time. You know, you'll hear there'll be say people will say, Well, you know, such and such threw as hard as Satchel, or such and such stuff was as good as Satchel. But when you become the measuring stick 
for everybody else, you must be pretty doggone good. Yeah. And uh, but I don't think any of those other players who might be mentioned in the same breath, they didn't have the entire package. Yeah, that longevity, that charisma, uh, and that great stuff. You know, wherever he pitched, the towns were shut down. But watch him. Everybody wanted to see the old man do his thing. <laughs> it's a shame we don't have more like video and film of all the players and really seeing what they did. Mm-hmm. It, you know? it really is. I mean, what little bit we were able to get with Satchel, you know, there's some glimpses of it. You could see. Yeah, you could see. You you could tell. You know, the thing that the fact in 1948, when he comes up to join the Cleveland Indians, reportedly at age 42. <laughs> which means he was likely closer to 52 right, yeah. <laughs> and, and he goes six and one with a ridiculous 2.4 era his rookie season that's his rookie season and he didn't get called up until july of that year and if you go back and look at the 1948 season cleveland was behind in the pennant race they don't win the pennant had it not been for the old man and I think they end up winning the pennant by one game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and they don't win that thing without Satchel being there. And, of course, the great Larry Doby. Larry Doby would integrate the American League literally just weeks after Jackie breaks the color barrier in the National League, and he's almost the afterthought. Uh, but that's how we are in our society. We always remember the first. We rarely ever remember the second guy. That's and, right, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. And, and Larry and Satchel helped Cleveland win its last World Series. The Cleveland hadn't won a World Series since 1948. Now, my Cleveland <laughs> baseball fans get tired of hearing me say that. They get tired of me reminding them that they hadn't won a, hadn't won a World Series since 1948. <laughs> well, hey, here in Texas, we've never won one. So, <laughs> at least they can say they won one. You know. 2000, we were so close. Anyways, I, don't, so close. I, I can't get so into that story. Oh, man, I know. Oh. I know. Two my outs God. away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> baseball do that to you um so in december of 2020 the major leagues finally recognized all the stats and everything from the negro leagues yes. so what does that mean to you and just the history of the league that finally it's recognized as a legitimate official league after all these years another integration yeah exactly i think in some ways there was a level of redemption because this should have happened well before it did Mm. And for us, Major League Baseball was acknowledging what we already knew was that the Negro Leagues were as major as any league. And and so it does serve, I guess, to some degree for historical validation. Mm. But please understand that these players were never seeking validation from anyone. They knew how good they were. And as I mentioned, they knew how good their league was. And the major leaguers knew how good they were. And it was a shame that it took so long, but I tipped my cap to Commissioner Manfred for doing what others could have done, but didn't do. Yeah, it's always the right time to do the right thing. And he did the right thing. Yeah, because this league was as major as any league. It had had, even before the integration of the game, as much impact on the major leagues as any of those other leagues that had already been recognized as a major league. You know, as we mentioned earlier, they were filling up major league baseball stadiums. 
Yeah, and, and those teams were getting a percentage of the gate and likely all of the concessions. Right, yeah. Yeah, so they were already impacting Major League Baseball even before the integration of the game. Mm. After the integration of the game, this little old league that wasn't considered to be major sends this boatload of talent in and Major League Baseball gets better. One of my favorite factoids is from 1949 through 1959, nine of 11 National League most valuable players were former Negro League stars. That's amazing. Yeah, this, yeah, yeah. this, this little old league that was not major it was having major impact. <laughs> Basically took over the league once they got in. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Okay, so what, what can one expect to, when they visit the museum? Tell us about that. Oh, God. It, guys, it's so incredible. It is, it is so special. It really is. So you can expect to take a very nostalgic journey back in time. And you're going to meet some of the greatest. I call them athletes because they could have played anything. You're gonna meet some of the greatest athletes to ever put on a baseball uniform. So I do think the work that we've done over the last three decades now as an institution, people come here expecting to meet some pretty good baseball players. And you're gonna leave not being disappointed. You're gonna meet some of the greatest athletes to ever play this game. But by the time you walk away from this experience, you walk away with an even deeper, richer appreciation just how great this country really is. Mm-hmm. Because this story could have only happened in America. And yes, it is anchored against the ugliness of American segregation. Again, a horrible chapter in this country's history. But out of segregation rose this wonderful story of triumph and conquest. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, it's based on one small, simple principle. You won't let me play with you. I create my own. But when you stop to think about that, that is the American way. And while America was trying to prevent them from sharing in the joys of her so-called national pastime, it was the American spirit that allowed them to persevere and prevail. So when our guests leave here, they literally leave here cheering the power of the human spirit to do just that, persevere and prevail. And the story is told through a wonderful collection of photographs, artifacts, great scriptive pieces, multimedia displays and the incredible field of legends that has this mock baseball diamond with 10 life-size bronze sculptures of Negro League greats. And y'all, they are cast in position as if they were playing a game. I'm biased, obviously, but I think it is one, I think it is one of the most compelling displays in any museum anywhere in the world. And when I guess finally get to the field because we segregate you from the field. We wanted each and every one of our guests to experience what segregation was like. So you come mm. in, you can see the field, but can't get to it. Oh, wow. That's, and, uh, yeah. and the only way that you can get to the field is you have to learn their story. And guys, mm. by the time you bear witness to everything that they had to endure just to play baseball, yeah, then you get to take the field. You feel it. Yeah, there's, you, you feel it. If there's a sense of self about you, you absolutely feel it. It can be very emotional for folks. I'll never forget my dear friend, the great Ozzie Smith, the mm-hmm. wizard. 
You love Ozzy Smith. Yeah, that's my guy. That, that's my guy. And when we had our grand opening in 1997 for the new museum, when he made his way to the field, he said it was one of the eeriest feelings he ever had because it wasn't lost on him that he stood on the shoulders of those immortal giants to pursue his major league career, to become the wizard, to become a future Hall of Famer. Yeah, it doesn't happen had it not been for those players. And that wasn't lost on him. And, 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 and what the Negro League Baseball Museum does, and, and again, my, 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 my late friend Buck O'Neill says it so beautifully, it's very rare in our world, in our society, that we celebrate the people who built the bridge. Mm-hmm. More times than not, we celebrate the people who crossed over the bridge. Well, here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, y'all, we celebrate the people who built the bridge. Yeah. They mm-hmm. built the bridge across the chasm of prejudice mm-hmm. that allowed both black and brown players to now move in and pursue their major league careers. They should not be forgotten their legacy deserves to play on. And it plays on here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Yeah, and the museum was just recently added to the National Civil Rights Trail. How do you feel about that? I'm elated because that means that the message was was getting home. Yeah. Because a lot of times people will look at this as just a baseball story. And it is a beautiful baseball story, but it's so much more than just a baseball story. Mm Yeah, this is an incredible story that is so steep in the American spirit. And it is as much a civil rights and social justice story as it is a baseball story. And we've been saying that all along. I wasn't sure if people were really grasping it, but our addition to the U.S. Civil Rights Trail means that they now is resonating. And that's going to be meaningful for us from a tourism standpoint, because there are a lot of people who follow the trail to go to those attractions that impacted civil rights in this country. But we've said all along that Jackie Robinson's breaking of the color barrier wasn't just a part of the civil rights movement, that it was the beginning of a civil Mm -hmm. rights movement in this country. This is 1947. This is well before those more noted civil rights occurrences. This is before Brown versus the Board of Education. Mm -hmm. This is before Rosa Parks' refusal to move to the back of the bus. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was merely a sophomore at Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, when Jackie (laughs) signed his contract to play in the Dodgers organization. Our very own President Truman, Harry S. Truman, Independence, Missouri, right up the road from me, he wouldn't desegregate the armed forces until a year after Jackie. So for real, for, for all intensive purposes, this is what started the ball of social progress rolling in our country, baseball. Wow. So as we prepare this year for the 75th anniversary of Jackie's breaking of the color barrier, it is important that people understand that it all began in the Negro Leagues and it all began right here in Kansas City. You cannot tell the story of the integration of our sport without both the Negro Leagues and Kansas City. Mm. Yeah. So, like, in this, we have a fast-paced world. Like, baseball seems slower and all that, but people that love it, love it. So, But why is it important that we remember 
the Negro Leagues and the history that's all involved in this. You've kind of touched on a little bit with the civil rights, but what's like your mission in telling everybody? It's the story of America. Mm. It is the story of America at her worst, but it's also the story of America at her triumphant best. And what these unsung baseball heroes, as I like to call them, what they were able to do was to forge a glorious history in the midst of an inglorious time in American history. But the pride, the passion, the perseverance, the determination, the courage that they demonstrated in the face of adversity. And I remind people all the time, our story is not about the adversity, but rather what they did to overcome the adversity. Mm. That's the real story. Uh huh. And, and that just that sheer love of the game would change the game. But more importantly, it would change our country. Mm-hmm. So for me, what's not to love about this story? <laughs> it has everything that America prides herself. And yeah. people just simply didn't know this story. And it's no fault of their own. As my late mother would say, you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And, and this story is not in the pages of American history books. So countless mm-hmm. generations of us went through our own formal educations without knowing one of the most significant chapters, not in baseball history, but in American history. Yeah, definitely. So true. Listen. Oh my goodness. I I think today you have channeled your inner buck spirit. Right, yeah. Because I feel I, better than when I when we got here, I feel better now. I have been bitten by the Bob bug. <laughs> the Bob bug. The Bob bug. Because you are a delightful storyteller. Your smile lights up a screen. So I just thank you so much for taking time. I've learned so much today. My husband is the researcher, especially when it comes to our sports podcast. And he, so he knows a lot about this. I learned a lot. I learned so much from you today. And I thank you so much for taking time. I hope that when we get to back, go back to Kansas city, we will come and shake your hand and get a, oh, wow. get a tour of this museum. I, I am looking forward to it. I hope that it happens in the very near future. I thank you guys for the opportunity. You know, we always love to take advantage of these platforms that give us an opportunity to talk about the great work that we're doing here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and hopefully enlighten some folks about a piece of history that they may not have known very much about. So we appreciate right. the opportunity. So thank you guys for having me. Yes, Bob, okay. thank you so thank much. Thank you, Bob. Take care. Thanks for the time. Right. Thank You're you. Welcome. Bye-bye. Right. See ya. Bye-bye. I told you so. What'd you tell me? You're going to get getting bitten by the Bob bug. <laughs> the Bob bug. I certainly am. <laughs> I, feel about, I feel better about everything right now. Yes, he, he just like draws you in yeah his voice should be a scented candle and i want to sit at his feet and him tell me like nighttime stories like just talk about anything anything yeah just talk about anything he's such a great storyteller i learned so much during this interview i learned so much so what a great interview we hope you enjoyed it if you love baseball and you love anything history you're gonna love this interview it was so great well it was so cool how we were able to talk about civil rights and all that just to see how america's changed over the years yeah and to see that there were great things that were happening and there were some really awful things happening Mm -hmm. and just to see the perseverance of these players yeah and not being bitter and all that it just i just feel great yeah thank you bob We hope you've been bitten by the Bob Bug, too. That's right. (laughs) Hardy Party of Five and a Half, over and out. We'll see you next time.